Well, Pastor Josh woke up this morning, and he was not feeling well. So I got a message asking if I could preach in his stead, and I said, absolutely, I'd be happy to. But that means we will not be in the book of Revelation this morning. We will take a quick break. So I want to ask if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Oftentimes, when we read something out of context, or even if we just see something out of context, maybe it's a scene in a movie, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. And I was reading a book a few months back, and there was a a portion of the book that I thought was very odd, and it was this explorer who was down in uh, Antarctica, and he had decided that he was going to try taking some insulation out of his boot and putting it in his pipe and smoking it. And so if you just started on that page of the book, you would be really, really confused as to what in the world this guy was thinking and why in the world he might be doing this. But if you catch the backstory and you read all the information from page one up until this point, you understand that he was on the Endurance, which was a ship that sailed down to Antarctica, and it got trapped in the ice, and it was crushed by the pack ice, and it sunk. And the whole crew of 22 men survived on the ice flows for about two years before they finally were rescued. And so during that time, they ran out of tobacco. And this guy just really wanted to smoke his pipe. And so he thought, I got to find something to smoke, something to keep my mind off of being miserable and freezing cold down here in the Antarctic. So he decided to take his boot insulation. Pretty wild story but not as crazy when you understand the context. In Romans chapter 12, there's a massive shift in the book. And what happens is Paul begins in chapter 12 to talk about practical living, how we should live our lives. But what we need to understand before we just go straight to Romans 12 is that there is a reason that Paul instructs us on how to live. It's not that Paul just has these great ideas for how everybody should live their life and that's just what he's going to say and and recommend that everybody do it. Paul has carefully and thoughtfully for 11 chapters out of the book of Romans explained why he has led to this conclusion. So it's important that we don't just start reading Romans at chapter 12. You've got to start at chapter 1 and read all the way up until chapter 12. But I want us to see what he says here in chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. So Paul, beginning in chapter 12, has all kinds of instruction on how we are to live as Christians. But like I said, we don't just start in chapter 12. We have to understand the context. We have to understand the backstory to understand how Paul gets to these conclusions and why he comes to these conclusions. I'm not going to give you a full explanation of all that has happened in Romans 1 through 11, but turn back with me to Romans chapter 3. In Romans 1, 2, and, th- and most of chapter 3, Paul explains that there is a problem with humanity. And that problem is that we are separated from God because of sin. And Paul goes into explaining that sin runs through everybody. And there's that summary verse that maybe all of you are familiar with, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a great summary statement for all of what Paul says in chapters 1, 2, and most of 3. He's explaining that no matter who you are, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are a sinner. Every single one of us is touched by this problem of sin, and because of it, we are separated from God. And what we rightfully deserve is punishment is damnation. But there's a shift in chapter 3 as well. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 22 is so important. Make sure you know this verse. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is a breath of fresh air after chapters 1, 2, and 3. Paul says, the righteousness of God is available through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so that is a huge shift in the book of Romans as Paul is explaining every last one of us deserve judgment and damnation, but... The righteousness of God is available by faith in Jesus for all who believe. It is a free gift to anyone by believing in Jesus. Now, he goes on and explains what all that means in the, in the subsequent chapters. And then we come to chapter 12. And Paul has explained a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology. And all of that leads to How should we live? Because all of this is true, all of the doctrine and all of the theology is true, how then should that affect the way that we live? I've got two points for you this morning. 
The first is that holy living is a result of God's mercy. Holy living is a result of God's mercy. The second point is that God's grace enables us to work together as one body. Now, I don't have those written down. I'm probably going to forget what they were by the end when I try and recap them, so I may need you all to remind me. So the first one, God's mercy leads to holy living. Verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So here's the shift. Paul has gone and explained all of what's true, this doctrine about what God has done to save us from our sins, how it's even possible for sinners to have a relationship with with God. And he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God. So everything that he's about to say, he says, is on the basis of what God has done, the mercy that he has shown you. Now, this mercy is we are receiving something that we do not deserve. We have been given grace, not because we've earned it, but because God has given it to us freely. And he says, because of this mercy that God has shown, here's how we should respond. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he says, because God has shown us mercy, our response should be presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, we think about the word sacrifice. We don't really use that word a whole lot in the same way that maybe this first audience would have thought of it. When we think about sacrifice, we think about, well, you know, groceries are so expensive nowadays, we're going to have to go without getting cheese this week. That's a sacrifice that we're going to have to make, right? It's basically having to go without or to do without something that you would like. But when we think about the the initial audience, right, these people are not that far removed from the Old Testament. And if they're familiar with the Old Testament, their first thought when they hear the word sacrifice would have to be, well, that's how they worshiped in the Old Testament, You go back to the book of Leviticus, and there's all kinds of laws and rules about how someone is to bring a sacrifice before the Lord. If someone has sinned, there is a sin offering that must be brought. And what happens is an animal is sacrificed so that the individual will be forgiven of their sins. And so sacrifice is very much so intricately woven with worship. That's part of what it is to worship. And so now Paul is using that same uh, terminology here and talking about you and I. We no longer offer sacrifices of animals as part of the way that we worship. None of you thought to bring your goat or your sheep this morning so that you could offer it at the altar. It didn't even cross your mind because that's not how we worship anymore. We don't worship exactly the same way, but Paul is using that same idea, but he's saying that we are to present our bodies, not something exterior to us, but our own bodies as a living sacrifice. Fascinating idea that no longer are we offering animals as a sacrifice to die, but now our own bodies as a living sacrifice. To help us understand this, I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Because I think we get a great picture of what it means for our 
bodies to be a living sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. We have this awesome story about G, uh, Peter confessing who Jesus is. Start with me in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, and from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, for this shall never happen to you. But he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going, uh, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In this exchange, we see Peter knows who Jesus is. He knows that he is the son of God. Jesus tells Peter and us, that's not something that man has revealed to you. That's something God has revealed to you. God opens our eyes to see who Jesus truly is. Then Jesus begins to say that he must suffer and ultimately die and then rise again in three days. And Peter's response is, I don't think so. That's a terrible idea, Jesus. Let's actually do something different because that doesn't look like the way that we should go about things. That doesn't seem like the path to victory. And Jesus' response, which maybe we've all heard before, is, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus then goes into talking about, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the idea of a living sacrifice. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. It means we have to lay down our own desires, our own wants. So maybe it does come back to not getting cheese this week at the grocery store, right? There are sometimes our personal wants and needs are going to have to be put aside for the sake of another, could also look at uh, Philippians 2, the, the, the Christ hymn or the example of Christ's humility 
where he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. It's that same idea of offering our bodies now as a living sacrifice. We give ourselves up for the sake of worshiping God. But he also says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We also have Old Testament imagery there because with the Old Testament sacrifices, it's not that you could just offer any type of animal that you wanted to offer. There were strict guidelines that an animal must be without spot or blemish. And for certain types of offerings, it had to be a certain type of animal. And there were some substitutes, but you couldn't just bring whatever you wanted. And in the same way, we cannot live our life however we want and assume that by laying down some of our wants and desires that we are offering our bodies as a sacrifice to God. Paul is saying our living, the way we conduct ourselves, must be holy and acceptable to God. That's pretty heavy to think about. The way that I live, the way that I conduct myself, the way that I treat my wife, the way that I treat my kids, the way that I uh, go about doing my job, is it holy and acceptable to the Lord? That's a weighty question to ask ourselves. But Paul would remind us that all of what he's instructing us, right, to live in a sacrificial way, to, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, it is all because of the mercies of God. It's because God has sent his son. And by faith in Jesus Christ, we are made righteous. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. And so because he does that, it is possible to live a life that is holy and acceptable to God and to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. He goes on to say, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All of us want to know what the will of God is. And Paul is saying here, the way that we're going to know what the will of God is, is by not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by God. That's going to happen through the Bible. That's going to happen through being convicted of sin, turning away from it, repenting, and turning back to God. The reality is we are taking on the form of what's around us. The two options that Paul gives here is do not be conformed to this world, all right? Something to be conformed means it's changing shape into something else, but also, the response to that is to be transformed. So it's to be in the shape of something else and to turn into something different. I think of the Transformers that looks like a car. Oh, no, wait, it's this massive uh, robot from space, right? It's transformed. It looks like one thing, but then it becomes another. Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
This is what happens when we read the Bible. This is the work that the Spirit does inside of us when we believe. The Spirit renews us. The Spirit changes us. The Spirit convicts us of sin and causes us to to turn away, to repent, to go the other way. And he says, by the renewing of our mind, that that by testing we will be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So the first thing that we see from this passage is that holy living is possible because of the mercy of God. It is possible to live a holy life that is pleasing and acceptable to God. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's possible. The key ingredient being that God has shown us mercy. Now, my second point, like I said, I forgot what, exactly how I worded it, but it's that we are now, as believers, gifted for the building up of the body. Look at what Paul says next. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion with our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. When God saves us, he changes us, transforms us by the work of the Spirit through the reading of the Scriptures, and God gifts us. God graciously gives gifts to his people for the sake of the body. Now, as we think about the body, Look around this room. This is the body of First Baptist Fairdale. Now, this is not the complete body. There are some that are not here this morning. But this is the body. And the way that Paul explains it is he compares it to a physical body. And just as you and I all have physical bodies, we all have different parts of our body. We've got hands and fingers and feet and toes and torsos and all kinds of stuff. And all of us would agree that all those different parts are really important for the functioning of the body. To be able to do the things that you want to do or the things that you like to do, you probably need multiple parts of your body. And Paul is using that same picture to describe the church. Now we talked about this in Sunday school just an hour ago, but it's really beautiful the way that God gifts people differently. Because not all of us in here are gifted the same way. We all have different gifts, different abilities, and serve in different ways. And that's a good thing. Because if all of us had the same gift and the same way of serving, we'd really be getting in each other's way a whole lot, wouldn't we? And that would not be pretty. One of the things that we talked about in Sunday school was what I prayed about during pastoral prayer time, this opportunity that we have to feed sports teams. There are a lot of places in our country where this 
does not happen, would never happen. But it's beautiful that it happens here. And as we talked about this in Sunday school, we, we basically said what's so good about it is that when the high school thanks us for doing it, they thank First Baptist Fairdale for feeding their teens. Now, they could just thank Josh Green, or they could just thank Becky McBroom, or you know, whoever else is involved, but they don't see it that way. They see this as all of First Baptist Fairdale serving their community. Now, some of us have never been there one time when we have fed a football team. But some of you have given money to help pay for the food that feeds these football teams. Some of you have come after and swept and taken out trash and things like that. Some of you maybe just came early and helped do a little prep work as you had time and then left. But it's a beautiful picture of the church as a whole working together, many of us in ways that are never seen, that are never noticed, that are never complimented. But yet that is how it works with the body too, isn't it? How often do we think about our heart, the fact that it just keeps pumping all day long, all night long? We really only think about it when we're out of breath and it's pounding through our chest. But most of the time, we don't think about that or we don't think about the fact that, that our lungs are taking in air and they're getting rid of carbon dioxide and I'm not even gonna go any further into that. I don't know how all that works, but I'm thankful that it does. The reality is we don't see all of that happening, and there's a lot of that in the church as well, And that when God gives his mercy to us who are undeserving and he saves us, and then he bestows his grace on us and gifts us in unique ways, God does that for the building up of the church so that the church can do what our mission statement on the front of the bulletin says, that we exist to proclaim Jesus while loving and serving both God and people. God saves us. God has given us his mercy. And because he has, we are to be those who lay down our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him. We are to live in such a way that honors God. We are not to be deceitful, But then God gifts us because God understands that Christianity is meant to be lived in community. We need one another. We build one another up. We encourage one another uh, regularly. And that is a gift that God gives us through his grace. But what's most important about all of it We want to be a good, healthy church. We want to serve our community. We want to help and serve the high school in any way that we can. But what's most important is the mercy of God. Because without God's mercy, we're in that position of rightfully deserving judgment. See, Paul begins by saying, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. That is why you should live in this way. 
That is why you should lay down your life as a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. That is why you should live in a way that is worthy of God. That is why you should use your gifts to serve the body. That is why, because God has shown you mercy, we cannot think that we can just get involved and yeah, I've got talents, I've got gifting and I just want to use it apart from receiving the mercy of God. If someone wants to try and and fit in and serve without first having their heart changed to be a heart that loves Christ and repents of sin, it does not work. Paul says, my appeal is on the basis of the mercies of God. This morning, I hope you understand that the most important thing about us is not how well we serve, not what gifts we have, not what all we do, The most important thing about us is that we've received mercy. And what Paul says all the way back in chapter three is that it's a free gift. The righteousness of God for all who believe in Christ Jesus by faith. If you've not believed, today's the day. You can believe today. It is a free offer that will not stand forever. As we've been reading in Revelation, the end will come. And at that point, it is too late. But today is not too late. Today, the invitation is there. The righteousness of God for all who believe in Christ Jesus by faith. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the wonderful news of the Bible, that although we are sinners separated from you because of our sin, the righteousness of God has been made manifest through your son, Jesus. And it is, it is free for all who will believe in Jesus by faith. God, I pray this morning that we would understand that holy living is, is only a result of the mercy that we have received from you. And God, as we've received mercy, I pray that we would understand that you've also given us gifts by your grace to serve the church, that we can continue making Jesus known all the while, loving and serving both God and people. God, we thank you for your mercy, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to sing one last song.